0: Welcome to episode 54 of the Swampflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn here. And we are coming to you from New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. And we are still recovering from. Like, 20-plus hours of wrestling content from last weekend. Yeah, I didn't even watch the shows this week. Yeah, I was just like, I need a little break from wrestling. There were some good, uh, like, wrap-ups to stories. Uh, Paige had, like, a three-day arc over the weekend that kind of made me cry a little bit by I Tuesday. did hear she's the new GM of SmackDown. Yeah. That's pretty cool. She made me tear up, like, two or three times this week, which is nice after, like, the way they treated China. In the '90s, versus like how they're like yeah. respectfully like staying loyal to her now, it's really nice.
1: Yeah, I think she could
0: be good in that role.
1: We obviously we went to WrestleMania, which was super fun. What what did you think of the whole experience? Because I've been to a few, but this was your first.
0: I gotta say, my favorite part of WrestleMania coming to the city. Was going to the smaller shows the day before. Mm-hmm. We saw Ring of Honor out at the Lakefront Arena. Yeah, I was there as well. It's a much smaller venue, so it's like more intimate, and it's a much more—I um, don't want to say like dangerous, but it's a much more like adventurous wrestling company. So like, you have like the young bucks will jump off ladders, and their whole match was basically just spot after spot after spot. Where like, spot fest. I definitely. was like worried about people like hurting themselves through most of it, but in a kind of thrilling, fun way. The
1: matches are definitely a little more physical than some of the WWE matches. But my favorite thing from the whole weekend, including Ring of Honor, was that Ronda Rousey match at WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. That was
0: fantastic. That was the most fun I've had during a match in a long time. That's uh, actually something that surprised me because I despise her as like a public persona because she said some really like downright evil things about trans people really i yeah. wasn't aware of that so her coming to the company has not been like a positive for me i got you especially for someone who's being built up as a wrestler and doesn't necessarily have the skill set even though she's like a fighter she it's a different set of skills to like do professional wrestling because it's like performative um but yeah the storytelling in that match and how powerful she looks she had that sort of like brock lesnar like tearing through the company kind of vibe
1: when she was punching triple h in the corner and he was just flailing around like a child that just made me so happy i thought wrestlemania as a whole was pretty good i think what surprised me is the matches that i thought were guaranteed to deliver like the aj styles nakamura and the brock lesnar roman reigns kind of fell flat for me and then the ones like the ronda rousey match that i was kind of skeptical about
0: ended up being really entertaining I think like Rousey and like the Charlotte Oscar match. That was really good too. After those highs, it was hard to like maintain enthusiasm because WrestleMania was seven hours long this year. It's a lot. Especially
1: when you've been to wrestling show the night before.
0: Yeah. After Ring of Honor, I went out to Kenner to this uh, even smaller arena to watch something called Kaiju Big Battle, which actually is my favorite thing I saw all weekend. It was at midnight though. And it was these wrestlers dressed as giant monsters. Uh, some of them were, like, you know, your typical kaiju. They were, like, giant lizards and stuff. And other ones were dressed as, like, a giant hamburger crossed with a bear. His name's Burger Bear. <laughs> and then there's also, like, miniature cities in the ring, too. That yeah, these destroy. like, little cardboard cities uh, that they, like, slam each other into. So, so fun. Like, that was the most fun I had all weekend. And then, you know, staying up late and then going to WrestleMania the next day for seven hours. It was just hard to, like keep that enthusiasm going. I did see a defense of that that I kind of agree with, though, which is, it's called WrestleMania. Like, it's supposed to make you feel a little insane by the end of it. And definitely towards the end of, like, Mania proper, I was, like, kind of fraying at the edges. I was becoming crabby and, like, loopy and sort of, like, losing my mind. Yeah. so I,
1: I think any, even, like, with film, if I watch, like, eight hours, of which I've done, I went to the Oscar showcase thing where they showed all the best picture nominees and after 10 hours
0: of really doing any activity you can kind of go a little insane yeah it was kind of like a film fest feeling which i've done that before where like over the week i'll watch 15 movies at the same two or three theaters and you start to like detach from reality by the end of that <laughs> totally have you had time to watch any movies since mania or actually i've
1: caught up on some stuff that you had recommended uh i finally watched florida project that was my favorite movie last year I loved it. Awesome. You've already said so much. I can't really go any further. Just It is really a great movie. I, I really loved it.
0: And it's finally available on Amazon Prime, which is nice that people access it. Yeah, can that's why I finally access
1: it. was able to catch it. And then as far as in the theaters, I did see Unsane, the new Steven Sodenberg. That, you know, shot on an iPhone. Really cool and really unnerving. One of my favorites from this year so far. Yeah, and I thought he used iPhone like... To uh, its advantages, kind of, and it had a very unique, sort of claustrophobic look about it. So yeah, I really enjoyed both of those movies.
0: Yeah, the angles of the phone almost feel like a webcam, or like someone like accidentally filming themselves while like scrolling through Facebook or something. Mm-hmm. So this like uncomfortably close, like ugly look to it, but yeah. in a way that's like really affecting.
1: Yeah, I know you're a fan of movies like Unfriended and stuff that use that same sort of. Aesthetic. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. What about you? Have you seen anything recently?
0: Well, speaking of like gimmicky internet movies like Unfriended, I saw this movie Truth or Dare on Friday. Oh, I saw a trailer. That looks good. It's really fun trash. Like, people have been shitting on this movie, and I don't understand why they're not having fun with it. Um, and the basic concept and why I'm bringing it up is that it's like a Snapchat filter horror movie. So, like, the central conceit is that there's this demonically possessed game of truth or dare that the contestants can't get out of, uh, and whenever it's their turn to answer the truth or dare prompt, the person giving it to them is just their friends with this, like, evil smile takes over their face, and it's this really cheap, ugly effect, and it looks like, you know, a Snapchat filter, like, mm-hmm. kind of like the puppy dog one that people use all the time. Or God, I hate that. Yeah. I like that the movie admits out loud... That's what they're doing. Like, early in the film, one of the girls is like, you should have seen this face. It was like a messed up Snapchat filter. So, like, they're openly acknowledging that's the gimmick. And, honestly, for the first 15 or 20 minutes, it was a little shaky for me. I was like, oh, this isn't that exciting. Like, it's not as silly as I want it to be. And then it just got exponentially more ridiculous throughout until, at the end... It goes so big with its premise, uh, with implications that are so ridiculously large outside mm-hmm. of this small game of truth or dare between friends that I was just wholly won over. Really, if you want to watch like a dumb, high concept, trashy movie that like really commits to the implications of its premise, like. That one really sold me by the time it was over. Hell yeah. I just would recommend not quitting on it in the first act. Like, I could see maybe the first ten minutes you're like, ugh, oh, this is not mm-hmm. that exciting. But it really does get there once the game really starts to get going. That sounds great. And also during Mania, I went to this really ridiculous event that was just a blocker's screening at AMC. And John Cena was there in the crowd with us. So yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing about John Cena is he's like this, like, ridiculously committed babyface like he's never turned heel since he's become like the face of the company and he's basically this like eat your vitamins go to school never give up superhero uh, a lot like what we're going to be talking about today nice segue uh, and because of that his audience of like really dedicated fans are mostly like middle-aged women who find him very attractive and they're like tiny children mm-hmm. so i went to this screening of blockers which is this R-rated, raunchy sex comedy where John Cena's there to do a Q&A, so most of the audience that shows up are, like, really tiny kids. So I watched this, like, really raunchy sex comedy wow. with, like, an audience of children uh, and Marx, which was really fun. And they were, like, asking him questions after the movie, like, Mr. Cena... What was your first movie? <laughs> like it was really really fun. Did you, did you get to
1: ask him anything?
0: Yeah, I asked him one question which was like why he chooses to do these like R-rated sex comedies. Recently like with Sisters and Trainwreck and mm-hmm. this movie, it seems like he's like establishing this pattern of doing these like very adult R-rated comedies, which is different than his WWE persona. Mm-hmm. And that was basically his response was that when he first started doing movies like around the Marine, which we've talked about on this show, and that kind of stuff, it was because Vince McMahon wanted to expand the brand of the company. And he was just basically like doing what his boss wanted. And now that he has freedom to choose roles, he wants to do things that are so far away from what he does in the ring that he gets to show a different part of his personality. He's like, I'm an adult man, so I find sex jokes hilarious. Uh, it's not something I get to like really do with my character. And that's interesting,
1: too, when you look at... The roles that The Rock has taken, he still is kind of in that action mode, and it's kind of refreshing that Cena's going a different way with it, into the raunchy sex comedy. So that that makes me like him a little bit more, and
0: to know that he likes those kind of films too, he just seems like a cool guy. And just from like crowd work and like watching him ad lib at that Q and A, like he's really good at just spontaneity and improv and that kind of thing. So like fitting in with these like Judd Apatow type comedic productions is good for him, I think. I mean, those movies are pretty much like improvised and then Mm -hmm. they edit together the best. So I think he does work well in those. Yeah. And as for Blockers itself, I really liked it. It's directed by a woman and its premise in the trailer makes it look like it's three parents trying to stop their daughters from having sex. It's kind of like an anti-losing-your-virginity comedy in the way it's advertised. But the movie's much more nuanced than that. It's basically this, like, femme subversion of, like, the American Pie Porky's Losing Your Virginity comedy. Um, And it focuses just so much on the girls' POV as the parents. And it's kind of like this dual plot. And it even has this, like, coming-out gay subplot with it that I thought was handled really well. And it's just a very funny movie. And, you know, movies like that and the to-do list and Wetlands, like, I'll never tire of that subversion Mm. of the usual, like, bro... Uh, fucking a pie uh, version of that. So Cena's still on a roll. Yeah, doing really well. And okay, so the last time WrestleMania came here was WrestleMania 30, so it was like four years ago. Mm-hmm. When I started watching again was like right after that, because y'all all went to it and we started watching it more and more like a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, four years ago, I did not like John Cena. He was like an obnoxious presence that sort of like overpowered a lot of the stuff I liked about wrestling. And now four years later, I'm like a fucking huge fan. His role at this year's
1: WrestleMania was great too. Like calling out the Undertaker for weeks and weeks. And then he just shows up like in the crowd like, a fan, and then Undertaker finally does show up and just beats his ass. Yeah, it's a squash match. In, like, a, like a five-minute match. Yeah. And, like, that was great. Yeah. like So he kind of has gotten away from the Superman scene of
0: stuff. Yeah, he's, he's more willing to put people over, or at least creative is more willing to allow him to put people over. Uh, a lot of stuff is not really his fault. He doesn't book the show. but Yeah. Yeah, I've seen him in the last four years give other people the spotlight, be a team player instead of, like, a look-at-me kind of guy. Which is very different from what we're talking about today. Because we've had, like, this, like, wrestling submersion over the past week, Uh, we wanted to look back at, like, the biggest name in the history of the company. It used to be WWF, and now it's WWE. And this is basically what Cena's career was modeled after, was Hulk Hogan. In the Hulkamania period in the 80s was like the most popular wrestling's ever been on a national level, I think.
1: Yeah, that and like the Attitude Era with Stone Cold and The Rock. But yeah, the 80s was like so mainstream and Hogan was kind of the
0: poster child for that. And he was never willing to put other people over the way Cena is. Like he's like a self-aggrandizing, egotistical maniac.
1: Yeah, there's tons of stories on the internet about him just refusing to... Uh, job for other people or lose, and a lot of backstage politicking and
0: pathological lying. <laughs> uh, and we'll see him lie a little bit today. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we'll also see him enjoy the fruits of being the most popular wrestler in the world because he managed to squeeze a film career out of it. Uh, and we're going to sort of look back at his heyday when the uh, country was suffering from Hulkamania. <laughs> we'll see like what we allowed him to get away with. Oh, yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now.
1: We were discussing Hulk Hogan's penis. Yeah, because Terry Billet's penis is not 10 inches, like you're trying to say. All right. It's not mine, because mine isn't that size, but we were discussing the length of Hulk Hogan's. Seriously? You, so, you. you no, seriously, I do, I do not have a 10 inch penis. No, I do not. Okay. Seriously. Okay.
0: Fair enough. And now it's time for our Movie the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. James, what did you make me watch today?
1: Since we're going with the Hulk Hogan WrestleMania theme, I thought it'd be good for you to see Nobody Speak. This Netflix documentary that came out a couple years ago about the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker. So basically, to kind of summarize the story, Gawker got their hands on... A sex tape of Hulk Hogan having sex with his best friend's wife, Bubba the Love Sponge. Bubba the Love Sponge, the radio personality. <laughs> and they released it, and Hogan said, I did not agree for this to be released. Please take it down. They refused, and he sued them for a ridiculous sum of money $100 million. $140 million. $140 million. And he won. And he effectively bankrupted a media company. Now, there's more to the story. There's a swerve. There's (laughs) definitely a couple swerves in there. And the big one is there was a Silicon Valley, I mean, millionaire, billionaire, this guy, Peter Thiel, who years prior had been outed by Gawker for being gay. And he was really... Offended by that, he didn't see how it was relevant. It was his private life. And he had kind of made it his mission to take down Gawker. And when this Hogan case presented itself, he was like, ah, this is my perfect opportunity. And he essentially bankrolled Hogan continuing with this lawsuit. He was kind of shadow funding this whole case. And the reason I thought it would be interesting to have you watch this is Not only because it involves Hulk Hogan, and you kind of see sort of what a lying,
0: racist piece of crap he is. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to like talk about his time as a movie star. We have to, like, acknowledge up front that he is a fucking monster of a human being in real life.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff he says in this video, because part of it was a sex thing, and then once the lawsuit got started, Gawker also had audio of him saying really, really racist shit to the woman that he had slept with, and as kind of a tit-for-tat, and to further hurt him, they released this, which is what actually did a ton of damage Because I don't think most people would care about the Hogan sex thing.
0: Which was kind of why they were curious why he was making such a big deal about it and why they were in so much trouble. It wasn't that much traffic even for them to have that out there. And then that's why it turns out like, oh, this sort of Republican investor was like... Taking them down uh, behind the scenes and funding the whole trial. And also Hogan had an interest in stopping this like racist rant from yeah, coming out. because he knew it was on there. And it pretty much is what removed him from the WWE Hall of Fame. And he still hasn't made a comeback from that. I think all references to him have been removed from WWE media. It definitely tarnished his image.
1: And that that's part of the $140 million in damages took that into account, too. So it's interesting on the the Hogan level, but he's kind of actually a side player in this. What I think is more interesting with the documentary is the questions it raises about media and journalism, First Amendment rights, and basically should a billionaire have the power to put a media company out of business that he has a thing against because they printed a negative story about him. And so the documentary kind of goes off in these tangents. It goes into stuff with, like, Trump and his attacks on the media and the side story about this Las Vegas paper that got put under by this casino mogul that didn't like. And that that stuff's a little
0: weak. Yeah, I mean, Um, just by the default of not having a professional wrestler at the center of it, it's, like, a less sensational story. And that kind of feels like they're
1: tacking it on. Like, I will say this documentary, and I'll have to hear your opinion on it but it definitely seemed like a pro gawker journalism side of the argument but i do think there's a case to be made for the other side too and so basically this i think this documentary is really good at kind of encapsulating where media is right now and the warring factions between like what is journalism first amendment rights but also right to privacy who's a public figure and
0: so it raises a lot of interesting questions. The full title is "Nobody Speak Trials of the Free Press." It's not yeah. really like about Hogan. It's about First Amendment rights and like how that's being challenged by you know these billionaires with so much money. Kind of the same way that like PACs are changing the uh, political campaign process where like there's a lot of money behind the scenes that nobody's seeing, and they're using that money in these like really nefarious ways. So so what did you think of it? I think I came up with a pretty good metaphor of what this film is like in like wrestling terms. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it's like a Royal Rumble match where every surprise contestant is like a total fucking scumbag. Like Hogan, obviously a real piece of shit. Peter Thiel, also a piece of shit. He's yeah, like
1: there's a lot of stuff that's come out since it's like he's not a good guy.
0: No. And he's insane. He like has these fantasies about building this like island and this like Ayn Rand style, uh, libertarian utopia that's just like really unfeasible and just makes him look like a fucking crazy Howard Hughes person. Right. Gawker. I never liked them. I always thought they were like cruel in this like really unnecessary way. Like even Peter Thiel being a real piece of shit, I don't agree with Gawker's entitlement to... Exposing his sexuality and making his sexual orientation and public knowledge against his will. Like outing people is really a really fucked up thing to do no matter it who is. you're doing it to. And they have this like really self righteous explanation in the film about like how it's better for more executives who are gay to be seen publicly and that's like better for society at but, large. It's not what really gives them the right to
1: make that.
0: Yeah, it's decision. not your call. It's fucked up. No matter how gross you think Gawker is, though, they have a right to press. Like, they have a right to free speech. I mean, it's not slander. They didn't say anything, like, necessarily wrong about people. that wasn't true. I just found them really slimy. I never liked them when they were around. But that doesn't mean, I think, billionaires who disagree with the kind of stuff they want to print uh, being able to shut them down through these, like, back legal channels. And, like, Hogan being used as a pawn in this scheme after his career at, like falling apart anyway. Like, he wasn't, like, when a top his life guy. was falling apart, too. Like, he was going through a divorce
1: and all the stuff with his kids, too. He was not in a good place. It's really
0: bizarre to hear him talk sentimentally about how Bubba the Love Sponge is, like, the only person in his life who cares about him anymore. It's really, like... It's sad. It's sad. Um, so, yeah, it's really pathetic watching him on the stand being used as a pawn in this, like, larger chess match while these, like, back-scene characters sort of manipulate the truth just to reach an objective end for all the movies like surprised like contestants that enter the rumble every 20 minutes because there are a lot of like twists and turns in the story which I understand why they thought this would make it for a good documentary it's just interesting to me how like no one ever comes across as good everyone is morally questionable in this legal battle but I still had to concede without question that Gawker had a right to exist and that them being shut down for things that had nothing to do with the trial that actually shut them down was a evil thing
1: well, I agree. Gawker is slimy in their tactics, but I had kind of forgotten some of the actual news stories that they had broke. Like, they were the first ones to really break the Bill Cosby thing, and some and some other stories that, like, other news companies avoided because they were sort of salacious and rumor-based. But in that way, like, Gawker was kind of cutting edge and willing to go there that other places wouldn't, but with that comes like, a lot of slimy behavior. And
0: gleefully cruel. I, th- I would, That's how I would describe their, uh, their tactics. I will say, though, like, as a documentary, stylistically and, like, formally, it's not that interesting. Like, it's a good story, but it's a story that doesn't sustain, like, a whole 80 minutes or 90 minutes, however long it is. I
1: think that's why they add in these other subplots, and those moments are actually, I find, pretty weak, just because... It kind of is painting, you know, the things we're talking about in, like, black and white terms. Like, it's easy with the story with the Los Angeles, or sorry, uh, Las Vegas paper that was put under by the casino mogul. And they're just, like, hardworking journalists. It paints these questions in really black and white. Like, obviously, this rich man suppressing free speech is not cool. But I think the Gawker case is way more interesting and it's way more of a gray area and the fact that it brings in these more black and white cases to sort of buffer its case makes it seem a little manipulative
0: i think it's just missing a third case like Mm -hmm. ideally from like a formalist standpoint just having this like really large chunk of the story be the hogan case and then this like sort of 20 minute aside for the vegas case just doesn't feel very strong it's like you either should have fully committed to just doing hogan or you should have like added a third case to sort of like make this like a triptych but that's just, like, arguing about it as, like, a form... Like, it's not, like, a Errol Morris, like, masterpiece of a, a no, documentary no, filmmaking. Not. But I do think it raises a really interesting point beyond all this, like, First Amendment concerns. And that is the sort of post-truth Trump era of, like, dealing with the media and, like, calling into question all media coverage and, like, discrediting what's true. There's this great podcast I listen to called How To Wrestling, uh, and it's a history of wrestling as like an art form and like they'll spend about two hours going through the life of like any wrestler, their Hogan episode, uh, which happened after the scandal is really exceptionally good, but they also have one on Trump as a wrestling figure Mm -hmm. and they build this really interesting case in how to wrestling about how Trump learned public speech and how to control crowds and command a space through doing wrestling promos. And you can watch him get better at manipulating narratives in the ring on the mic, and mm-hmm. he uses the exact same cadence and stuff when he's dealing with the press now as the president of the country. Um, That's so weird. It's so gross. And I think this movie does a, not as good of a job as that show because they didn't have as much time to deal with it. They do a good job of like turning kayfabe into politics and like showing how things that are used in the wrestling ring to distort reality and, like, craft a narrative that you prefer over the truth into, like, how we deal with the press. I think that's a lot of what Hogan contributes to the movie as a person.
1: Speaking of that, too, like, a really fascinating part of the trial is they're asking the question, like, what makes a Hogan sex tape newsworthy? Like, who cares? And why should that be public information? And I think the Gawker argument is like he was on the Howard Stern show talking about his penis size and bragging about all the women that he sleeps with. On the stand, Hogan basically admits or his like defense is that wasn't Terry Belea. That's not the real me. That was my persona, my kayfabe person saying those things. So that's not real. Therefore, my sex life is not out in the open. Yeah, Just because w- my character expressed it. And the attorney keeps asking him, wait, so were you saying that is Terry Balea or Hulk Hogan? And he's like, Hulk Hogan. And he keeps asking him that. And it's just weird how he shifts. Like, no, when I said this, this was reality. This is me. And when I said this, like, no, that was me playing a persona. And then you realize, like, with him, the lines are so blurred. How can you really make that distinction?
0: Yeah, that's like Vince McMahon as a person distinguishing himself from mr. McMahon as the wrestling heel when like the heel character in the ring is basically just him it's maybe slightly more turned up but it, it's basically just his own personality maybe even less evil according to some people but um yeah they were arguing about penis size on the stand is like one of the mo- more absurd moments in the movie where he's like no I, I wasn't bragging about my penis on the Howard Stern show my penis is not 10 inches long Hulk Hogan's penis is 10 inches long yeah I was personally devastated by this information being out there. Hulk Hogan would have loved it. And I have to play that public persona because that's my career. I think they do a good job of matching that up with footage of Trump in the wrestling ring. Because he is also a Hall of Famer Mm -hmm. uh, who has been allowed to keep his status despite saying just as much racist bullshit as Hulk Hogan has. You know, matching up. People call it uh, post-truth. I guess the old uh, Stephen Colbert word is like truthiness. Uh, Mm -hmm. fake the fake news era where like you could just declare something's not real uh, because it doesn't fit your narrative and that's
1: just as valid as what actually is real
0: yeah I don't think we can have a fully committed documentary that just argues that point to its fullest until after Trump's in office and we're looking back at this era but I do think there's an interesting corollary between pro wrestling and politics in that way Mm -hmm. and I think the movie does a good job of bringing that subject up without exhausting it because it doesn't have the full information yet but uh it
1: kind of sees where the tide is going or the trend and no I think that's what is really great about this documentary is not necessarily how it's made or overall if it like you said it's not an Errol Morris or on that level but for talking about these issues it brings up so many interesting discussions like I think the discussions you'll have after watching the movie are more important than the movie itself
0: yeah it's like an ethical dilemma film especially with Gawker it's like okay maybe you like Gawker that's fine but if, if you find them a little scummy you still have to admit that they have a right to print scummy stuff like it shouldn't be illegal to to print scummy stuff and that's not why they were shut down but effectively their First Amendment rights were taken out of their hands because of billionaires who didn't like what they were printing
1: true although Gawker did not do themselves any favors during the trial and while all this was going on, they acted like complete scumbag. Like at one point they ask Gawker, like, when would you not publish a sex tape? Like when is that not news worthy? I guess if it's a child? Yeah, if it's like if they're under four. And you know, he makes this like flippant, really disgusting comment, but that I think, more than any other moment in the movie, kind of showed Gawker's character.
0: They're like A bitchy, like, femme version of Vice, who I find equally gross, uh, because they're trying to be edgy and, like, shock value humor, which really isn't becoming on a 50-year-old, like, publisher, Um, you know? It's, like, almost trying to, like, be youthful and cool and edgy, and it just comes across as, like, really immature and gross from someone at that age. Someone making that sex tape joke as, like, an 18-year-old, I could pass off as, like, immaturity. Then Mm -hmm. making it as, like, a 50-year-old, like, journalist. It's like, what are you doing with your life? It's so bizarre
1: because they take these strong moral stances on some issues. Like, I remember they were really uh, against when all these, like, I forget what they called it. Like, all these images from, like, celebrities' phones, like, actresses, like, these nude
0: pictures. Like a nude leak.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they were like totally against that, like that's wrong, invasion of privacy. So they have like a strong moral stance on that, but if they get their hands on any sex tape or anything salacious, they release it in an
0: instant without any thought about the repercussions. That's choosing your political targets based on like, because like Hulk Hogan and Bubba the Love Sponge are both shown to be these sort of like right wing conservative type guys, especially Bubba the Love Sponge is like. Oh yeah, he's a piece of shit. He's detailed in like. 30 seconds to like two minutes in this film and it's easy to hate him instantly he's like this like nasty shock jock i'm gonna burn the quran on on the air to get attention
1: they never really explicitly say it but it's sort of alluded that he because he filmed it he had the copy of who the else would have DVD. who else would have leaked it which is weird like did he get paid like what was his incentive to basically try to take down his supposed best friend and
0: that's what hogan's like low point is is him admitting like he was the only person i had left in my life so to be betrayed by this man was like really hard for terry belay
1: obviously the film does not portray hulk hogan in a positive light do you have any sympathy for him at all
0: no (laughs) no uh kind of a tragic time for him so i guess on some human level it's like i don't necessarily want to watch people suffer But uh, all the stories I've heard about him, like, selfishly hogging attention from other people, lying about things. Like, on the How To Wrestling episode, they spent a little time on him lying about people after they die. So, like, him and Rowdy Roddy Piper never got along in real life and never, like, made up. And then
1: in some documentary, he'd be like, yeah, we were we're best friends. I loved him. Yeah.
0: Or, like, he'll say something like, Elvis was a Hulk Hogan fan. And it, like, turns out Elvis died before Hogan ever had, like, a television spot. He's a pathological liar. He is, by all accounts, a racist asshole. Like, there, there's evidence of that, like, hard, cold evidence of that. So it's it's not easy for me to be sympathetic on, like, a terrible person getting his comeuppance. But at the same time, like, the way he's, like, used as a pawn in this movie and, like, the way his only friend, who's, like, th- just the tragic humor of his friend being Bubba the Love Sponge, like... It's hard to, like, get over how pathetic this low is in his life without some sympathy. But for the most part, it's like, no, you're a bad person. And like I said earlier, this was like a Royal Rumble for me where, like, every contestant entering the ring was just another shade of scumbag.
1: Yeah, I think ultimately, while everyone is a scumbag, if I had to pick one side or the other, as much as it pains me to say, I think I'd fall more on the gawker side (laughs) of the art, which... This is kind of a like a pro
0: Gawker documentary. It's a pro free speech documentary. It's hard free to se- argue with, against that. And yeah, he, these are also queer journalists speaking truth to power. Uh, whether or not their tactics are entirely ethical is one thing, but like
1: right, I think like you can believe in free speech and the press and journalism, while also in individual cases being like, come on, you cross the line. That's really scummy. Like it's like when paparazzi like take pictures of people and they're like children or like any stories or sites put out about people's kids and outing homosexuals. Like that's not cool. Yeah. And that's fucked up. I don't know how we deal with that as a society, but the answer is not to get some billionaire, To fund a case to like completely destroy a media company.
0: And the movie does a good complicating of like, was Peter Thiel actually mad about being outed? Or was he mad about other stories they printed about him which were like undeniably despicable in other ways? Hard to say. I I do think in this like legal battle, this is all heels and no faces. But Mm -hmm. uh, Gawker was definitely the easier heel to root for, by far. Yeah. I don't think Hogan deserved $140 million for damages lost or whatever. He's going to need that money now that he has no more WWE income. He's not being dragged out at WrestleMania for a quick paycheck anymore.
1: That's such an insanely high judgment.
0: They said that's like at least 10 times more than they've ever seen in a trial before uh, for that kind of case.
1: I don't know. The interesting times that we live in.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, with the Trump uh, attitude towards media and having his like rallies turn around and yell at the cameras, it's only going to get uglier before it gets any better. So get used to it, I guess. Damn, I think it's a good time to be acquainted with pro wrestling and get like what kayfabe means and like get how these tactics are employed to like manipulate the truth and to exaggerate the truth to like a clear narrative that people can instantly latch onto. Mm-hmm. I think wrestling and politics have more to do with each other now than they ever have before.
1: Yeah, and even in a, a sociological aspect of that too, you talk about like Facebook and social media and the blurring of reality and fantasy and how those two can kind of inform each other and it's hard to tell what's real and what's not like all this stuff is kind of coming together and it really like feels like something has changed and we're going somewhere that i don't know people are like ready for i think it's gonna be kind of a dark time
0: and it's much more of a gray area than like the good guys versus bad guys stuff of hogan's heyday in the 80s right yeah there's not, not as many clear like good people and bad people in that fight. Everyone's a little muddled.
1: Hollywood's been screaming a long time. They wanted to see the holster's face. And you know something? With all the little slaves out there, all the ladies, all the ladies lined up that wanted to see the holster, I took a little bit of time off. I did train religiously every day, but I took just a little bit of time off to give Hollywood a piece of my mind.
0: And for our feature conversation, we're going to look at the career of Hulk Hogan as a movie star. Uh, And he has a career that's lasted way longer than it should have, so we're not going to cover everything he's done. Yeah, I mean, I was really shocked to learn that
1: there was three Thunder in Paradise films, and it was actually a TV series that, like,
0: I thought he would have been long gone by the, like, late 90s. Apparently not. Hulkamania started in the mid-80s. That's, like, when Hulk first went, like, way over. It lasted for like an indefinite period of time. And it's hard to like know when to cut it off. I think we chose like around 98, 99, which is when he turned heel and went to the NWO. uh, Mm -hmm. Just so we have like a chunk of like, this is when Hulk was this like superhero, good guy, like eat your vitamins, go to school, do your homework, which I guess kind of ended when it became like a biker asshole around the NWO period. Yeah, and I think as
1: like a preface to that, to kind of start off, we should talk about his first starring role in a film in Rocky Three, which is interesting because he's kind of playing a bad guy, but he's like playing a character. So it was kind of like exposing the business uh, sort of an early point when I think some people still thought it was real. Yeah, he's like breaking cave a little bit. But I think that was his first big role, and I really think it's interesting that he comes across really well in that movie, from like an acting standpoint, like he doesn't seem like an amateur. He seems like he belongs there. But then later on in his career, when he's kind of given more to do, it kind of shows his faults as an actor.
0: I mean, he's not like a major part of Rocky Three, right? Like he's not like one of the main characters. No, no, not at all. But it was still really big exposure for him, and kind of helped to make him a star.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. I think that was like what kind of got him introduced on a mainstream level, and then. When WWF really blew up in the 80s, you know,
0: No Holds Barred, and on and on it goes. No Holds Barred was the first production from WWF as a movie studio. They didn't start making, you know, movies until the early 2000s when they were trying to push The Rock and John Cena as action movie stars. This was made in 1989, and it stars Hulk Hogan as, like, a over-the-top version of his in-ring character. Like, he's this kayfabe... Amazing guy in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and No Holds Barred. He plays this guy named Rip that basically just is Hulk Hogan. Like I don't know why they bothered not calling him Hulk Hogan in the movie. It might as well have been like the Hulk Hogan movie. What's interesting
1: about it too is I didn't really know this because I wasn't watching at the time. But there was a lot of intertwining the movie with WWF programming at the time, where there was actually in a pay per view where they showed like part of the movie and then. There was, like, an actual match.
0: The villain from this, Zeus, didn't he have a match with, like, Randy Savage or something? Right,
1: it was, like, a tag match with Randy Savage versus Hogan and Brutus Beefcake, if I remember correctly.
0: Now, was Zeus ever a wrestler in the WWF, or is that just an actor in the film? I know he
1: had a stint in WCW Ah. years later, but, yeah, so it's interesting. The movie was definitely tied in with WWF programming at the time, and that's why I think... The rip character is essentially Hulk Hogan. Like you said, I don't know why. Why bother? Why, like, they should have just gone the next step and just been like, no, this is Hulk Hogan.
0: And it starts with uh, Mean Gene Okerland and Jesse the Body Ventura doing the normal WWF, like, announcing. And it starts with him in the ring wrestling as if it's just like a pay per view broadcast. It just feels like very natural transition to the screen, except maybe the camera works a little nicer. You know, it's like actual like celluloid or whatever, but yeah, really interesting that they chose not to do that. But his character in the movie is like kayfabe good guy Hogan. Like he's super smart. He's super charitable. He stands up for what's right and what's good. And he basically just has no faults, which isn't the most interesting characterization for a hero. But I kind of... I mean, out of all the movies we watched today, I would say maybe this one is the, like, legitimately best one. And even though it's not that great of a film. It's my second favorite that we watched. Interesting.
1: But but yeah, I I kind of agree. I think it's the most... I guess, like, you could say well-made. As a wrestling fan, it's really enjoyable because it feels like a big wrestling match and just, like, a more cinematic scale. So on that level, I think it's, like, his most effective film
0: and what it allows him to do too is to show that he's not just that character in the ring when he leaves the ring he's still super strong and like can destroy a car with his bare hands and like leap over a wall and like it's basically like making him out to be like a real life superhero uh, which is what kids would have like ate up at the time the villain of the movie the main villain is kurt fuller who you know is also like the evil epa guy in ghostbusters and uh, later would play this exact same character in Wayne's World as a villain, uh, but he's like this evil network executive mm-hmm. uh, who wants to lure Hogan away from whatever fake version of WWF is in this film to his cable company. Uh, it reminded me a, l- a little bit of Videodrome, like James Woods' character, like wants to make this like over the top, even more salacious version of cable television with like actual torture and like hardcore sex in it. Uh, Kurt Fuller wants to make this. Even more violent spectacle out of wrestling where like people like actually have their lives threatened by like real life monsters. I I was surprised at how like dark of a villain.
1: Yeah, like there's stuff where he sends his goons to like rape the love interest of like really inappropriate for a movie that was marketed towards children. Oh, yeah. And he's like a pretty nasty villain for a seemingly which should be like a lighthearted movie.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a slobs versus snobs thing where, like, he's this, like, metrosexual, like, New Yorker-type industry goon. And Hogan is, like, a man of the people. Right. But at the same time, the movie makes fun of regular working-class people as well. Because, like, when the executives from the TV studio go to a local bar to observe what, like, grassroots-style wrestling is, it's this, like, grotesque, like, cesspool, like, the worst, scummiest dive bar you can imagine Uh, In his first movie role, Peter Dinklage is suspended above the ring in a cage and just sneering and, like, spinning tobacco juice on people. It's fucking disgusting. (laughs) That scene is
1: probably my favorite scene in any of the Hogan movies that we watched. When the execs go to the bar? That barroom scene is really insane.
0: It's a lot of fun. Yeah, the piss trough in the bathroom is just, like, overflowing onto the floor. Oh, it's so gross. It's one of the grossest set pieces I've ever seen. Just, like, the production design looked... Convincingly grimy, but like on a whole, the movie isn't that interesting, like plot-wise, because it, it's basically just there to make Hulk Hogan look cool. They bring him to a French restaurant and try to upstage him, like, "Oh, you wouldn't want anything off this menu," and it turns out he's friends with the chef and eats there all the time. Or like, there's a, a really bland love story with him and like this lady that's supposed to seduce him. He'll like take out people trying to rob the restaurant when they're on a date. Just by throwing pies in their face and like knocking the guns out of their hand in this like comical way. I also
1: love that the love interest is sent as like a trap, Mm -hmm. basically, and she's just so enamored and taken back by what a good guy is. She just confesses (laughs) the whole plot, which is really stupid and
0: kind of funny. And then the movie tries to make Hulk Hogan look sexy in their love plot as well. It doesn't really work. There are a lot of up-close shots of him clenching his ass while working out. That's like, really horrific. Yeah, he's not a sexy individual. I I don't know why they had to go with that (laughs) angle. Okay, but that part, not that interesting. But I think his, like, conflict with Kurt Fuller as, like, the TV executive, I think, is really strong stuff. Uh, There's a part where he, like, force-feeds him a bribe he's like, I won't be around when this check clears. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really funny one-liner. And then Kurt Fuller is kind of murdered by TV itself at the end. He's, like, electrocuted by this, like, broadcast stack. And it's just really funny to me that he's basically this, like, megalomaniac, evil TV executive, which is pretty much what Vince McMahon is in real life. Right? I was
1: thinking that, too. Like, that's pretty funny.
0: And this is the first, like, major movie Vince McMahon's ever produced. And he, like, chose this script which is like kind of making fun of his whole deal but knowing
1: him like the sense i get of him as a person i think he likes to make fun of himself i mean that's what the whole vince mcmahon heel character was all about hey that's mr mcmahon mr mcmahon right yeah that's a character he plays (laughs) Uh, also i'll say too about the villains i really thought zeus was terrifying He's a really scary dude, and it's um I forget the actor's name, but it's Debo from Friday. That's, oh, it's that
0: guy. Yeah, that's probably how most people would know him. Isn't he also the president in uh, Fifth Element? I think. I think yeah, he is. That's hilarious. <laughs> but I he, didn't recognize
1: yeah, him. Yeah, no, that's him because he's got the one eye. He's good. He definitely could and apparently was a
0: professional wrestler for some time. They did a good job of making him seem larger than life. Like I didn't recognize him just because I think of the character as being like almost like kaiju size. Like he's like a huge guy and has no thought in his eyes. Like he's just got these like dead, he just looks evil like eyes. Like a monster machine yeah. man and he cripples uh Hogan's kid, I mean his kid brother. And then at the end, the kid brother's in a neck brace, like cheering him on at the main match. It's really (laughs) fun. But yeah, this is like a, I think, a pretty good, ideal version of what like 80s kayfabe would look like in an action movie. It's not an exceptional film in any way. Even as like a campy pleasure, it's like kind of minor. But I think it's a pretty ideal version of what like Hulk Hogan's deal looks like on screen. It's interesting to see
1: with the next movie and the movie after that that we're going to talk about how. It kind of shifted in the 90s to more like, I guess, slapstick family comedies were all the the rage apparently. And instead of going with the no holds barred direction, Hogan was put in these other like more
0: family friendly films to kind of diminishing returns and removed from wrestling for all but one of the rest of the movies we're talking about. Like this is the last like wrestling he's and a lot of the other characters are not in-ring performers the next movie from 1991 was suburban commando uh, which i thought in the first five minutes i was convinced this was gonna be my favorite and then it just kind of peters out for me
1: it was my favorite mm-hmm. just because i think the first half of it is pretty solid i think a lot of it has to do with christopher lloyd and some of the other characters that he's surrounded with what kind of bothers me about or what doesn't work is when it gets to the actual mechanisms of the plot and the action towards the latter part of the movie, it just sort of falls apart. And what's really fun about it is watching him crush a cantaloupe, like he's testing it for ripeness or like beating up a mime, (laughs) like these little vignettes of just him walking around this like intergalactic warrior that's in suburbia, just sort of walking around and getting into mischief that section of the movie was really fun and enjoyable but then once these mercenaries come down and it actually gets to like the climax of the film it sort of doesn't work anymore
0: to me it was like a whoopee cushion like when you, when you first sit down on the whoopee cushion, it's pretty funny. And then if that whoopee cushion was stretched out for, like, two hours, like, towards the end, I was just, like, wanting out. Well, okay, so it starts, like, a legitimate sci-fi adventure comedy. This, like, uh, Buck Rogers, you know, uh, Flash Gordon style, like, just one more adventure in this guy's life as he's battling these, like, evil baddies in space with this very John Williams Star Wars score behind him. Mm-hmm. And he sort of takes out an army of space villains all by himself and is sent to Earth. For a six-week vacation.
1: I love that that is his reason to come to Earth. It's not to save the planet or any mission. It's just like, this dude is worn out. He's been up in outer space, like, completing missions for years. And his boss just tells him, like, you need a vacation. (laughs) I love that that is what gets this whole thing started.
0: And it's a really fun way to explain the ridiculous look of him. Like, if he's not going to be a wrestler... You have to sort of explain why this giant, muscly monster is, you know, mixing with regular people. And I think describing him as a space alien is a pretty fun way of, like, making his outsider status in suburbia, like, even more apparent. Yeah, and when he first lands, he's dressed in this
1: silver suit or whatever, and he very quickly just blends in. And, like, there's one gag where a guy leaves his dog in a hot car, and the next scene, Hogan's like, Put the owner in the car and taken his clothes and then he very quickly sees a sign for an apartment for rent and he just like gets an apartment and he moves it like
0: he very quickly adjusts to yeah. life on earth when like you know 12 hours ago he looked like a cross between rambo and robocop like <laughs> he should not be fitting in as well as he is right now he just looks like a, a trucker and Kind of like I don't know. I'm trying to think of other examples like Harry and the Hendersons. Maybe his out of this world presence is supposed to teach the Earthlings like life lessons. So like Christopher Lloyd is this like really put upon nerd who like has no confidence in standing up for himself, and then this big bulky guy with like all the confidence in the galaxy is supposed to teach him to you know pay attention to his hot wife and you know uh, stand up for himself at work and run red lights
1: too. Like that's a recurring gag is christopher lloyd just cannot run this yellow light even though everyone else does and then by the end of the film when he's become a man again he just like runs the red light and then shoots it out with a
0: laser because <laughs> he's like totally matured as a person i, I don't know <laughs> i just i lost it by that time like seriously with the outer space opening and like I think there's, like, over the credits, like, a rap song where Hogan is, like, rapping along with this other, mm-hmm. like, party rapper. I was like, this is obviously the best one on the list. Like, this is so fun. And then, I don't know, I guess I kind of got it back towards the end. because At the climax, there's this alien comes looking for Hogan. and basically transforms into this, like, predator lizard beast. Why did they save that for the end? I thought that was really well
1: done. Mm-hmm. The alien's costume... But it's, it only makes a brief appearance for a couple minutes at the very end of the film. Maybe they
0: blew their budget on the transformation. They can only do it once.
1: And, and that brings up something else I noticed watching these films. Is one strength that they all have, I thought, was good villains. Like We already talked about No Holds Barred. And in this one, I really like the actor that plays... Oh, I can't remember his name. Yeah. I, I don't remember. He, he's not like an actor I recognize. But he just like is overacting... To a ridiculous level and just like chewing the scenery up and embellishing every line.
0: He's a lot like Kurt Fuller in, uh, in No Holds Barred in that he's like an evil executive who like takes other people's work to his own credit, you know? Larry Miller is his name. Larry Miller. Okay. He's, a, he's definitely like a that guy character actor. Like you'll you'll see him in other roles, but it's not someone whose name you, you typically know. That's true too. Larry Miller. But I'm also talking
1: about the big villain. Oh yeah. The, Who isn't really in the movie for most of it. No, he comes, he's at the very beginning and then comes back at the end. I love his very shrewd, evil, like psychopathic space commander character for all the movies though. You know we'll get to the other ones, but for some reason, his movies have like solid villains to
0: play off of. Do you think the movie would have been better if it was just Hogan, like in a straightforward space adventure, and he didn't take the fish out of water vacation in suburbia?
1: But see, the fish out of water vacation in suburbia is the parts that I liked. I did like the very beginning, but I, hon- I honestly wanted more just little gags of him I didn't find the him. gags
0: that funny, though. Like, I the mean, mime that... stuff got tired, because there's, like, I mean, a bunch of them.
1: I mean, it's stupid, but, like...
0: There's, like, a scene where a car alarm's going off, and he, like, rips the car alarm out, <laughs> and the car alarm's begging for its life. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: no, I, I know that it, it's not actually funny, but the camp value of yeah. it made me admire it more than some of the other ones that came later.
0: I do like when uh, there's a... Hot rod that's always blocking uh, Christopher Lloyd's driveway, and he's like too meek to say anything about it. Uh, and Hogan just moves it out of its way, like, you know, fuck the guys next door for, for blocking your driveway, making you feel timid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they yell at him, and he's like, oh, you want to fight? I'm like, no, we're going to sue you. This is the 90s.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really funny, too. Yeah. One, one disappointing thing about it was the Shelly Duvall character does absolutely nothing yeah this whole movie like why and she's a good actress too i just don't know the, what really she was doing there the one but,
0: scene she really gets spotlighted in she dresses in lingerie to try to turn her husband on and he just ignores he's her. not interested yeah she looks a little like susan Saranen in that scene just kind of weird but yeah with the the hair yeah
1: yeah well oh, and also another wrestler that makes an appearance did you catch the undertaker no what yeah he was one of the two mercenaries you didn't recognize no.
0: him. Doesn't he like Mark Harris or Mark Calloway? Calloway. Yeah, he's still he's Did the not one that ends up all. with
1: the toilet
0: on his head. If he's not riding a motorcycle or wearing a giant brimmed hat, I'm
1: not gonna recognize him. <laughs> he doesn't look the same. Yeah, obviously, but no, that's definitely him. He has zero charisma in this movie, though. Um, and
0: he kind of had zero charisma in the ring. Like his best years were when Paul Bearer would like do all the talking, and he would just look menacing in the background. Yeah, he was never good at promos, but it is funny catching all these wrestler
1: cameos because there's i think one in every single movie yeah
0: i only caught him in thunder and paradise so i'm gonna have to oh like i got that had jimmy Hart, brutus beefcake
1: mm-hmm. and then uh, another Hart. <laughs>
0: now yeah i think anvil
1: uh nate Hart, or something but yeah i caught some of those and then oh at the beginning of the next movie we're going to talk about mr nanny there's a montage of all these different Wrestlers, he's like having nightmares, you know, post traumatic stress of his time in the ring, and there's like Kamala and a few different ones there too. So
0: pretty much every movie has some other wrestlers getting work. See the next movie, Mr. Nanny from 1993. That was my favorite of this like children's film period of his. I liked this movie, not a lot, but I liked it okay. And I think part of it is like the maintaining kayfabe thing. Like Uh it's like you said, it starts with him having nightmares in the ring, and the reason he left wrestling in disgrace was because he refused to rig a match. Which, what the fuck, that's your entire business. And he was ashamed to go into the bodyguard business because he's a wrestler. There are so many fucking bodyguards that are ex-wrestlers. Like, that is a viable career path. Just a really weird lie, this movie. (laughs) Um. Man, see, this one I liked because of the stuff with the kids. Most of the movie,
1: or a big chunk of it, is uh, these kids that he's having to watch over because their father is... Uh, a microchip microchip inventor? Invent, yeah that has people that are out to get him and steal the microchip and it really is there's no point to that like that's not really interesting what's interesting is him having to watch over these two monsters of children that create these elaborate booby traps
0: yeah it's like two kevin's from home alone trying to kill him like
1: <laughs> and they're, they're not just playful like oh we're gonna it starts off playful like oh we'll just trip you and on the stairs it goes to ridiculous levels of like electrocutions
0: they like rig workout equipment to like crush his throat
1: yeah these kids <laughs> are like psychopaths yeah, they're trying to murder him no there, there's a scene too where they showed the number of babysitters or nannies that came before him and it's like hundreds of <laughs> names so these kids have done this for years And that, I think, is, like, the heart of the film and why it works.
0: Yeah, and it's a good shift for his character, too, because, you know, the Hulkster in the ring is a friend to children everywhere. And kind of like in Suburban Commando, where he's like, I hate Earthlings, he says a bunch of times in this movie, I hate kids, which is so different from his, like, normal character. Uh, And eventually, they win each other over, like... Because he's there to provide the attention and like the tough discipline the father figure isn't Mm -hmm. because he's off busy inventing microchips The kids learn to respect him for giving them boundaries and like actually tucking them in at night and stuff And he learns to respect them for I don't know trying to murder him and not succeeding the most Any of them teaches him is like the little girl teaches him grace and like ballet and like tea That's about it.
1: I wish there were more like sweet scenes Like, when he's tucking her in and singing her Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But for a lot of the movie,
0: it's pretty mean-spirited. Like, they really put him through the ringer, Which is a lot like what people say about Home Alone these days. Like, man, that kid's a little sociopath. Like, he's trying to murder those people for breaking in out of desperation, you know? But no, I, I agree. Like,
1: this one, I think overall, probably works better than Suburban Commando. And the individual gags... I feel like are better, but I don't know. In the end, I I don't know. It was like okay. Yeah, it's you know like, it's, I'm
0: like I'm, yeah, it's like a three star campy movie to me. It's like that was fine, but which for like these Hogan
1: films is makes it one of the top tier. Oh yeah, the <laughs> fact that it's even like passable. Like I could see families watching this and it's enjoyable and yeah. it's harmless.
0: It's got George Jefferson in it <laughs> getting all his stuff repossessed over the course of the movie.
1: That was a funny recurring gag where at one one point he's on the phone with. Hulk and Repo Man are literally just taking away his phone. Yeah, as he's on it, his apartment's
0: <laughs> just empty. Yeah, he's like uh, the Hulkster's old manager who took a bullet for him once, and because Hogan refused to rig a match, they're both out of business. So Hogan feels like he owes this guy a living, so like he has to stay with these kids, or his like buddy, whose life he owes, will be like destitute.
1: And he has some good little moments in there too, but. I think the worst aspect, or what brings this movie down, is uh, what is the guy's name? The bad guy. He has this metal helmet. I liked vers- him. <laughs> what? No, he's terrible. He's, uh, so he's
0: the guy from the New York Dolls that yeah. later reemerged as uh, Buster Poindexter and like feeling hot, hot, hot.
1: Yeah. Uh, but-
0: he was also the cabbie in um, Scrooged. Yeah, I that, thought he was pretty good. No, I hate that guy. <laughs> he's like That's the worst. He's like visibly grotesque. Like you look at him and you just feel like you're, like, you're looking at like a wet pervert. Uh. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: And his stupid gimmick where he hurts people by headbutting them with his metal. No, dude. It's, I, it's funny. It kind of had the same problem as uh, Suburban Commando. And that the first and middle section of the film works. But then once... The plot has to hit at certain points where the bad guy shows up and he defeats it. It kind of loses all its momentum, and especially when this guy shows up at the end, I'm just like, dude, I don't care about this guy. <laughs> I didn't like, care. I can tell you that. <laughs> like
0: as far as like the story line goes, I didn't care about the resolution. I Just
1: like I don't want you on my screen. I don't like looking at him.
0: <laughs> it was making me uncomfortable. I mean, that was that's like maybe that's the point. Yeah. I mean he he's partly pioneered punk as like a concept because he's awful to look at in that way. Like he was like a snotty front man for this like garage rock band that wasn't particularly good at playing their instruments and cross dressed, but sloppily cross dressed, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. So yeah, he built a career on just like being tough to look at <laughs> in general. But yeah, the best parts of the movie are like Hogan hanging out with the kids. There's a sequence where he like has to bodyguard for them at school and he gets sent to the detention office, so he's sitting at this like little kid's desk you know, waiting for the pr- principal to, like, give him a talking to. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, a it's cute. headbanger song on the soundtrack. It's like, I don't want to go to school. <laughs> Why do I have to go to school? Like, oh, and also fun. when he goes in the kid's room
1: and it's got some laboratory and he's playing, like, Anthrax or, like, Thrash. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Well, and also to go back to something you brought up in No Holds Barred about how he's, like, secretly really smart. They have that gag, too, with, uh the microchip where he's getting the job as a bodyguard. And the other guy was saying like, Oh, what do you know about microchips? And he goes on this whole like technical spiel about what a microchip <laughs> is. I love that. They add those moments in to just be like, no Hulk Hogan is super intelligent. Right.
0: You see that kind of made me chuckle. I think this is like the end of his like high period though. Like even though we watched two or three more movies, it mm. kind of tapers off after this. Like, the days of him being this, like, superhero god that knows everything and, like, is cultured even though he looks like, you know, a trashy biker. It becomes less and less convincing as the movies get cheaper. Mr. Nanny is, like, the last, like, well-funded film he did.
1: So the next one, I guess we can just jump into it. Unless yeah. there was what, anything
0: you... No. I, I thought Mr. Nanny was funnier than Suburban Commando. I just thought Suburban Commando had a better premise. If the gags were as good in Suburban Commando as they were in Mr. Nanny. I
1: was thinking that if you could have, and if his interaction with the kids in Suburban Commando was as good, if you basically took those two movies and somehow spliced them together, the bits that worked in both, you could have had a really solid family film on your hands.
0: As is, they're both like kind of
1: okay. They're fine. And and so with uh, his next film, Thunder in Paradise. Also in 1993. 1993. It's strange that it seems like it should have came like much later, because he sort of drops the whole family, I'm going to poke fun at myself like, and dress up in a ballerina outfit and kind of poking fun at his persona. In this one, it seems like he's playing it straight, as like a straight action
0: star, and it I don't think works. Well, this is a production from the two producers who did Baywatch. And this movie, quote-unquote, is like a backdoor pilot for a Baywatch-style show. Which uh,
1: apparently did have, like, a 22-episode run. Oh, it had that many
0: episodes? From what I understand, the the two sequels were actually, like, pieced together from episodes of the show. Yeah, they were two separate two-part episodes that they just put together and released (laughs) as, like, a direct-to-video movie. And this was, like, a direct-to-video movie as well. And it just feels like Baywatch with, like, Hulk Hogan just sort of like airdropped into it <laughs> right. um, with this sort of like Night Rider plot where he's policing the beach with this like super boat is what they call it. And that's the Thunder from the uh, title. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Thunder is like an acronym for something. I didn't even bother looking it up. Is it? Well, it's at least in all caps. Oh, okay. <laughs> they didn't, didn't explain didn't... it in the movie. Okay,
1: I was about to say, I don't remember them explaining it,
0: but... <laughs> and there's really not a lot of the super boat in the film. Like it opens with like a standard... They go to rescue uh, this family from Cuba. Cuban terrorists. Cuban terrorists, and like, <laughs> and then at the end, the boat comes back um, out to like solve all the problems. But there's a large chunk of this film with no boat. And there's a very bizarre subplot where it revolves around this
1: hotel and this woman ass Hogan. Or Hogan's character to marry her. So yeah, she's like
0: an heiress who has to, like, fulfill some part of the will by getting married within 48 hours or something. Just
1: really, like, soap opera kind of stuff.
0: Which is also another, like, stroke to his ego. Like, he's this super handsome man who can have a pick of any woman on the beach. But he has to marry this heiress to fund his boat. <laughs> to it's fund like, his boat? Yeah. yeah. That is, like, a central
1: part of the plot is, like, he owes the bank. Like $100,000 for this boat, so he agrees to marry this woman. So they each get something out of it. She gets a hotel, he
0: gets a boat. It's it's a weird ego boost, though, because it's, like, beneath him to have to marry this, like, super hot British heiress. (laughs) Who is pretty insufferable for most of the movie. Fair enough. And it does, that storyline does have a really awkward gag where her uncle is trying to prove that their marriage is a sham. So he installs hidden cameras in their bedroom to try to trick them into, like, exposing their marriage as a lie. And it felt uncomfortably close to the Hulk Hogan sex tape scandal.
1: Yeah. Because it's,
0: like, surveillance footage or them. Foreshadowing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the last image of the film is her, like, biting his lip because he's getting a little too handsy. And it's just, like, that's how they end. What a funny f- gag. <laughs> right. I'm just, like, it's uncomfortable. And, it, and definitely at the end, they're already setting up, like, a sequel or... You could tell they're setting up the the TV TV show. So it doesn't feel like a standalone film. It really... And for all intents and purposes, it was a pilot.
0: And that's what it feels like. Yeah, it's like introducing you to all these characters. He's got like a best friend buddy who like helps operate the boat. Who's kind of like the comic relief. I did like him. He's okay.
1: (laughs) I thought he was funny. Any laughs I got from it were mostly from him. And there's one scene where he uh, is disemboweling a shark... And he's pulling out like a license plate and then he gives the heiress's daughter this necklace he finds in there and he washes it off before giving it to her and
0: I don't just kinda weird. It's another like Hogan is friended to children everywhere. And no he one takes finds her it... paragliding. Yeah, no one finds it weird that this giant muscly man is hanging out with this like tiny child. Tiny,
1: yeah, and just taking
0: her on paragliding trips yeah. without her mother's knowledge. She's not exactly like a sassy like, sidekick character or anything. She's just like a, I guess, if you're a child, you want to be Hogan's friend? And that's why she's there? I don't really know. She doesn't have, like, jokes. No. It gives him something to rescue, I guess, in, like, times of crisis. But yeah, this is basically just Baywatch and Knight Rider smashed up with Hulk Hogan in the middle. There's really nothing that exciting about it. And like Mm -hmm. I said, you don't really get much of the superboat stuff except the, you know, end caps of the film at the beginning and the end. That was the one point where it started to Actually,
1: reach something approaching entertainment when they're trying to outrun a missile on the boat. And they have to put it into super drive, and they're going like seven Gs, and they go out the ways, and the missile hits the bad guys. And like, I was like,
0: okay, I wanted more of that kind of stuff. With you the gotta watch or like, the show, <laughs> or like jet ski, right? I do like this one sequence where he accepts the reality that he has to marry this woman to fund his superboat. He goes on this like introspective walk to see his boat and like kind of talk to his boat about it. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, He's like kind of despondent and doing that like Charlie Brown walk, like staring at the ground glumly uh, and goes and like has a quiet moment with his boat before deciding if he's going to marry this woman or not. I thought that was kind of funny. It was funny. Another favorite moment of
1: mine was when his sidekick is asking his love interest at the bar like, so tell me what your dream is. And her dream is to go to Venice and become a sculptor like Michelangelo, which seems so ridiculous. Like, that's what this bartender wants to do. And then later on, she's actually on the beach sculpting. (laughs) You're just like, that's weird. I guess she really is into sculpting. Like, that's adding some depth to a character that's completely
0: unnecessary. And another unnecessary detail is that Jimmy Hart is this, like, personality on the beach. They don't really do anything with him. He's just like he's there in the background. I don't even think he has any lines. No, He'd normally be carrying around a bullhorn and just talk bullshit at like top volume. But well,
1: I know Jimmy Hart is a close friend of his. Also Brutus Beefcake, who's mm. in the arm wrestling match, and also I think he like stands in his wedding at the end. But... Is it,
0: isn't Jimmy Newhart is another one, or N- Hart... Jim Nadehart or something? Another Hart Foundation guy. Yeah,
1: that's the other guy arm wrestling oh, okay. that Hogan. Wins the match by punching him in the face, which I've never seen an arm wrestling match won (laughs) that way. But it just seems like he got his good buddies. Like, hey, we're going to go down to Florida and shoot this pilot. Like, y'all should come along. We'll put you in there and it'll be fun.
0: Uh, But they're just kind of there. Yeah, kind of a waste. Even more inconsequential than Thunder in Paradise Uh, was this movie Secret Agent Club. Did you, did you even uh, watch that? One? No, I didn't. See, I didn't watch that one. I'll just go over it very quickly. This yeah. is Also, okay, this is from 1996, so this is three years after the pilot for Thunder in Paradise. So I guess he kind of was like out of work for a minute. Hulk Hogan plays this like super secret agent who poses in real life as a nerd and a single father. So this kid thinks that his dad is like this nerdy toy store owner, and it turns out he's actually like this Hulk Hogan superhero character. The only funny gag from that transition is after he does his secret mission, he's going back home to see his kid, he takes off his mullet and mustache and is like clean shaven. And he's like, oh, his like disguise is his Hulk Hogan gear, which is kind of funny. That's funny. Uh, but for the most part, it's another Home Alone style thing where the kids use toys from the toy store to trick the villains into thinking they have guns. And, you know, to set up booby traps for the villains to save Hulk Hogan, who actually isn't in the movie for a large portion of it, even though Hmm. he's, like, the top-billed star. A couple interesting side characters. Uh, Barry Bostwick plays one of the villains. Okay. Uh, And Pete from uh, Twin Peaks, the guy who was also at Racerhead. I I wish I knew his real name.
1: Oh, I know. Yeah. Jack? Jack something?
0: He tortures Hogan while he's kidnapped by the bad guys and forces him to watch virtual reality simulations of his kid telling him, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you over and over again <laughs> to like break his mind. Yeah. Well, that was kind of funny, but, you know, for the most part it looked like something Hogan did in like two weeks, while this whole other side plot movie about kids trying to rescue him like was most of the work, and mm-hmm. he wasn't there for that. So... It's even more inconsequential than Thunder in Paradise, which was a fucking pilot for a TV show. Um, so, if you're going to skip, like, you can skip all of these movies, really. None of them are essential, but this is, like, even the most inessential out of the, the bunch. And he had maybe one more in-the-theater production after that VOD slump. Mm-hmm. It's like, his last chance to, like, do a family-friendly movie, and then his career went back to VOD to this day. I think he still pops up in movies, but he's not, like, a star anymore, obviously. And the last one is Santa with Muscles, also from 1996, and it's this Christmas movie. This one made Jingle All the Way
1: look like... A masterpiece. A masterpiece. <laughs> it was so bad. And I think it had a lot to do for me. I think you said you'd watch these all in, like, 48 hours. Yeah. Which I did as well, but this was, like, the last one. That I watched, and it
0: just was such a slog to I kind of knew it was going to be like that, so I watched them backwards and ended on the good stuff. That probably would have been better. I was also, like, deathly ill when I watched all these, so I was, like, almost, like, hallucinatory watching this stuff with, like, a fever in bed, um, <laughs> which may have helped them seem more interesting than they actually were. The interesting thing about Santa with Muscles is that, unlike any other movie on this list, it acknowledges that he's a bad person in real life.
1: He yeah, plays an
0: asshole millionaire who doesn't give a shit about kids, is a selfish prick, who he is likes, not charitable. He
1: sells supplements or something.
0: Which Hogan in real life like put his name in all these inferior products, which is not that dissimilar to what this villain character would do. And he like beats up
1: his staff at the mansion just for shits and giggles, and then he goes and plays paintball and runs away from the cops and shoots paintballs at the cops
0: and causes them to get in accidents and one one of the cops is clint howard too which is kind of funny and also he has all these like rules for life where he's like never let a hand to anyone else because you might need that yourself like he's like just a selfish goon
1: a real dick
0: yeah uh i like seeing him play a bad guy especially knowing in real life that he is a real piece of shit seeing him sort of relish in like playing a heel which is kind of nice uh, well,
1: wouldn't this have been during his heel run? With this was 96,
0: NWO? I think. NWO was like 98 or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we cut it off before the heel turn. I gotcha. And in the movie, that pleasure doesn't last very long. Uh, the conceit of the film is that while he's running away from the cops, he runs to a mall to hide out and gets a concussion and wakes up believing that he's the real-life Santa Claus and becomes a charitable, good-natured person through that crisis. The only way he can actually become a
1: good person is through a serious head injury. <laughs> yeah, and being lied to by a con man who's trying to steal his vitamin supplement money. That actor I've seen in a lot of other stuff, and he's so insufferable too in this movie. So annoying.
0: I mean, he's pretty bad, but you also have like Ed Begley Jr. Jr. plays the villain. He's bad. Garrett Morris from SNL is in this movie. He's bad. Mila Kunis is in it as like a child. That was weird. That was weird. <laughs> it's like,
1: what was she like 12, 12 yeah something? like
0: what she plays an orphan at this orphanage that hogan saves as santa claus he like instills himself as the hero to these like orphan children
1: i do like that the bad guys going after the orphanage because there's like a cave with like gems under underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, really absurd but just i don't know i like my bad guys to be really bad and this dude is like attacking an orphanage
0: you can't get much worse than that and at the end of the movie the orphanage does crumble in this like kind of poltergeist kind of way it like folds in on itself mm-hmm. it's a really cheap effect it's not as good as poltergeist but it kind of ends on a bummer it's like oh our orphanage is gone <laughs> this millionaire ends up taking care of them because he like, becomes a good person through the uh, transformation but yeah it's really nothing that interesting here I don't think I will say it is billed as one of the worst movies of all time I don't think it earns that it's not even that like it's not that interesting. I saw that it was
1: on a list of top whatever worst holiday films and it was also on top worst films ever some other list and it doesn't approach that level of bad because I feel like to be on that kind of list there has to be some sick fascination or something fascinating about it this really isn't that it's more mediocre yeah. than aggressively bad and that in a
0: strange way, it makes it less enjoyable to watch. I never really get anything out of worst movie lists in general. It's usually a lie, first off. You know, stuff like Plan 9 from Outer Space, it's a really entertaining film that's, like, a better watch than a lot of, like, better-funded sci-fi pictures from around that time. Like, but,
1: I would rather watch, uh, like, Glenn or Glenda than watch Transformers. Right, right. It,
0: you know? Yeah, it's, a, it's an entertaining film, even if it's, like, outsider art because the people making it didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, Stand With Muscles might be kind of closer to, like, my ideal version of what a worst movie list would look like. In that the worst movies are really, like, the unmemorable, boring ones. And this is kind of like a unmemorable, boring movie. But it's not that bad. It's it's okay, I guess. It's really aggressively bland. I'll mm. never watch it again. <laughs> I won't think about it. <laughs> but it was, it wasn't, like, a horrifically painful watch for me.
1: No, it's just more... Kind of looking at your watch, like, is this over yet? <laughs> like, please. So yeah, his film career, at least in the theaters, definitely ended on a low
0: point. And it's probably ill-advised to watch all seven of his uh, starring roles in a uh, 24, 48-hour period. Just like it's ill-advised to watch 20 hours of wrestling in two days. You're eventually going to sour on the novelty of it. Yeah. What? Do you have anything to add about like his career as a whole as like a leading man? I feel like his roles
1: where he kind of subverts your expectations of him as a wrestler and being like goody two-shoes Mr. America is the stuff that works the best. But when he's more straightforwardly playing an action star, I mean, No Holds Barred is straightforward. He's kind of playing his persona in kayfabe. But he's like a
0: mean mugging brute in that movie too. On top of being like a really great guy, like all around A plus human being, he also like does a lot of like angry, mean mugging, just growling in that movie. So he just have like kind of like a aggressive like macho side to him. I more enjoyed when even in in this last one where he's playing like a dick
1: millionaire, those kind of roles I like him in. Yeah. I think. But for all his charisma, he's not a great actor at all. He's pretty bland in his delivery is very flat. Yeah, he's being asked to do these like Arnold Schwarzenegger type one
0: liners. But he's then-
1: not half the actor that Schwarzenegger is.
0: And, honestly, he was never that great of a wrestler, either. Like, mm You look back at his classic matches, like, especially the Andre the Giant and the Silverdome thing, the, the slam heard around the world, it's a really boring fucking wrestling match. Like, I yeah. don't understand exactly why he was a superstar, except, like, being in the right place at the right time.
1: Well, and I think that he understood the spectacle. What I know about him, he was an actually good wrestler when he was in Japan. There's clips of matches of him before he made it big as Hulk Hogan, where he's putting on, like, really good technical matches in Japan. But I think once he got to the States and started to blow up, he realized, like, if I want to make a shit ton of money, I have to create this larger-than-life persona and get good at the promos and that side of the business. And, yeah, just right guy with the right gimmick at the right time and, like, the eighties where it was really like Reagan pro America kind of deal. I,
0: yeah, he was just a lucky, lucky guy that has,
1: has a certain business savvy
0: too. And I don't think it's that big of a loss because of that for him to be like erased from the hall of fame history books. Now that he's like exposed as like racist, pathological liar, it's not that big of a loss for him to be not around anymore. Maybe he did, Vince McMahon a service by, like, popularizing this product on, like, a national level, but it could have been someone else. Watching these movies, it's not like there's anything specifically memorable about him other than, like, a look and, uh... And the gimmick. And the gimmick, I guess. And it doesn't translate to film well. No. That first run of No Holds Barred, Mr. Nanny, and Suburban Commando are okay. Yep. But they're very mild pleasures at best. I agree with that. Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, we'll come back to y'all in a few weeks with another episode. We're going to have a rundown of stuff we saw at French Film Fest, which was in February. Uh, very belated uh, rundown mm-hmm. of that stuff. And uh, Brittany and I are going to come back with more 90s like children's films, which is kind of like a run we've been on lately. Last episode, we did like Space Jam and some other Looney Tunes movies. Oh, yeah. And recently, we did... Uh, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion
1: oh I love that movie and now
0: we're doing all these like Hogan 90's movies I feel like we've accidentally shifted away from like being almost like a horror podcast to this like 90's nostalgia run uh, maybe it's just the time of year or whatever but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been kind of fun to like look back at the stuff 90's are making a comeback <laughs> that's because we're getting old I think <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well we'll see you in a couple weeks bye everybody bye bye